Job chapter 31. As we saw last week, we come to Job's last stand, and it consists of three parts. And we looked at them sort of in uh, total last week. The glory of the past, chapter 29. The agony of the present, chapter 30. And then a case for his innocence, which is what we will look at in some detail today in chapter 31. By remembering how wonderful his past was and describing how terrible his present is, Job creates an either-or situation. Either he has sinned and his downfall is God's retribution against him, or he has not sinned and what he is suffering, why he is suffering remains a mystery. But Job is insistent that he is innocent, uh, and that is what this chapter, chapter 31, is about. As we saw last week in chapter 29, he kept saying when, speaking of the past. Um, And then in chapter 30, but now, seems to be the key phrase. Here in chapter 31, we have this if then. That is, if I have done something, it sets up a conditional statement. Then, and he spells out the consequence of the condition if it is found to be true. In doing this, he is accepting the cause and effect uh, doctrine of his friends. That Job, you've done something wrong, that's why you're suffering. And Job says, if I've done this, then may these things happen to me. We saw last Sunday that in Job's time, it was the right of the accused to face his accusers. And it was also the right of the accused to plead not guilty by setting up an if-then sequence. That is to say, the person would say, if I have committed this crime, whatever crime that is, then may I be cursed by man and by God. These would all be written out to all the crimes that this person was accused of. And then it would, they would be written down and the person would affix their signature and it would be published. It would be posted in public. And anyone who was a witness or anyone who had been wrong, this would sort of be a notice to say, you need to come in court and give your testimony. But if no one came forward to give testimony, the document would be taken down, it would be taken to the judge, and he would then pronounce the person not guilty. No one has come. You have said that you were innocent. No one has come to challenge that. Therefore, I find you not guilty. And this is what we find uh, in verses 35 through 37 in parenthesis. And um, this is sort of where we will start. Um, if you look at it, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job says, here, write out these things that I have not done. I say I am not guilty. I will put my signature on it. He's not being literal. Okay, It's it's quite figurative. But it is a powerful image in that time. He says, let me put my signature on it. And signature is actually in Hebrew the word tau. Tau is the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. In the ancient world, tau was written pretty much like an X. So a person who could not write their name would put their X. That would be the mark. That would be their signature. Uh, Job probably could write his name. He probably had a personal seal, uh, being a wealthy man. 
But he says, here, let me let me put my X, let me sign this document and then let the almighty come and accuse me. I say I am not guilty. Let the almighty be the witness against me. If God remains silent, if God does not answer Job's challenge, then Job would be pronounced not guilty to the whole world. And the whole world would know that Job has been falsely accused. And so Job makes his case in this chapter by listing at least 14 sins of which he claims to be innocent. And he uses the if-then formula. But before we get to the specifics, consider what this chapter tells us about Job. And we looked at this last week at the end of the sermon. Just, just in general about him. First of all, that Job confesses that he has weaknesses. That he, I mean, he's not a perfect man. He's not claiming to be. He's not superhuman. And he admits this in the very first verse. When he admits the need for a covenant with his eyes. That he has to make a covenant. He has to discipline himself not to look lustfully after someone. Because if he didn't control himself, then that would be the natural thing for him to do. He's human. He's not claiming to be superhuman. We also see that his love goes beyond mere duty when it comes to taking care of those who are in need. He doesn't simply share with the orphans. He treats them as his own children. We also see that he avoids idolatry. He does not trust in his wealth, though he was one of the wealthiest men of his world. He was a man of hospitality. No stranger had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler. And that Job cared for God's creation. Uh, in this list of crimes, the last one, the last sin, would be a sin against creation itself. Job cares for God's creation. And so we have a sense that this is a rather remarkable man. It shouldn't surprise us. Because in the first chapter, we are told at least three times that Job was a blameless man. And two of the three times, it is God himself who says, have you considered Job, my servant, who is blameless? Two more things before we, we jump in. Uh, Job, as he speaks here in this chapter, has at least two assumptions um, that today are not widely held and in some circles are actually rejected. And therefore, there might be a gap between what Job says and how we think. First of all, for Job, there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as morality. Even beyond that, there is a universal standard for what is right and what is wrong. We used to call it sin, but people don't talk about sin that much anymore. It sort of flies in the face of conventional wisdom. It's counterintuitive. See, our age is not so much immoral, though we certainly probably have heard sermons to that effect, as it is amoral. That is, it is without moral standards. And when anyone claims to have moral standards, then they are seen as judgmental. Um, we live in a pluralistic society, and therefore it is sort of assumed that if you live in a pluralistic society, you surrender any right to claim authority when it comes to what is right and wrong. In a pluralistic society, no one has the right to say, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. Unless you think, well, no, but I'm a Christian and, and, and I do have moral standards. Um, just consider how willing we are and how easily we accept the idea that in other cultures, it may not be wrong for them. 
so that we really waffle on the issue of something being right or wrong. I think Job would have none of this. For him, right is right and wrong is wrong. And if he has done wrong, then he should suffer the consequences. And that's the second assumption that he holds. There should be consequences for doing wrong. The power of the law is found in the penalties that one can suffer for breaking the law. The power of a standard of morality is belief in the consequences that come for breaking it or going against it. Our generation, I think, not only struggles with the issue of morality, but even rejects the conviction of the necessity for consequences. And there are, there are a variety of reasons uh, for this, and we've talked about this in the past. Part of it is that in our advanced technological society, one can avoid oftentimes the consequences of one's actions. So if you don't take care of your teeth, the dentist will bail you out. If you don't take care of your health, the doctor will bail you out. And so we live in a world in which we believe, I think without saying it, that we can escape the consequences of our actions. I think abortion is sort of the epitome of a consequenceless life, that I can do things and avoid the consequences of my actions. I mean, the bottom line is that we are sinners. Our hearts are hard. We want to do what we want to not have to pay the price. And if I could digress, and it's somewhat related. Um, in our society, we have the principle of the right to free speech. We believe that people have the right to say what they want. Okay? But more and more, people are unwilling to suffer the consequences for saying what they want. And I've, I've spoken to my class uh, at, at Long Beach several times to this effect. I find this on both the left and the right, and so I'm not picking one particular political position, that people want to have the freedom to say whatever they want, but if they suffer any consequences of any kind, they're just like, I have free speech. And yes, you have free speech, but there are consequences. And you should be willing to embrace the consequences. Uh, I mentioned in Sunday school the whole fiasco with the Dixie Chicks. You know, that they said what they wanted to say, and as an American, I say they have the right to say that. But I also am amazed at how they are unwilling to accept the consequences for what they've said. And I know maybe I'm just Catholic enough to think that, that there's something almost redemptive in suffering. I mean, what, isn't, isn't, it, isn't it good to suffer for something you believe in? I mean, isn't that a good thing? It doesn't seem to be anymore. We want, to, we want to do what we want and not suffer the consequences. And for Job, this is not the way the world works. There are consequences to our actions. And for Job, the consequences come not only within the context of human relations, but within the context of divine relations, our relationship with God. See, as Job presents these sins, he presents them in this light, that each is a personal and public sin against the rights of man and the law of God. That is, when I sin against my fellow man, I sin against God. That each has external as well as internal dimensions. And it's really interesting because Job chooses the sins that he wants to talk about. He doesn't follow the Ten Commandments. In fact, he only mentions two of the Ten Commandments, adultery and covetousness. So he handpicks this list of things he says he hasn't done. But they all begin with an attitude or a motivation, and then they work out in the real world. 
Had Job been a Pharisee, I think he would have stuck to those things that we could see as only external. You know, that you wouldn't have to have Jesus come along in the Sermon on the Mount and say, no, 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 it actually begins in the heart and then works its way out. Job picks those sins that we know begin in the heart and work their way out to say, I'm not guilty of these things. And each of these sins that he picks has severe consequences. And human and divine justice in this world as well as in the world to come. And one conclusion we cannot avoid is that Job was a rare individual. I mean, how many persons would be willing to stand before humankind and God and say, here I am, I'm an open book, okay? If I have committed these sins, then may I suffer these consequences. Now we come to the list, and we'll go through it uh, one by one. It begins with the sin of lust, found in the first four verses here of Job 31. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. For what is man's lot from God above, his heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? Job begins this oath of uh, innocence with an affirmation. I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Job had made a conscious decision to control his eyes. The Old Testament, and the New as well, but we find it in the Old Testament time and time again, the eyes are considered the doorway to the heart and to the mind. It begins with Eve. She sees the fruit, that it was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took it and she ate it. Beginning with her and working our way through David, who saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And this led to his sin of adultery. The Old Testament is a record of seeing and looking and lusting for something or someone. And so God instructed Israel that when they made their clothing, they were to put tassels on their clothes, on the corners of their garments, to have something to look at and to remind them that you have these commandments. God has given you these commandments that you may obey them and not go after the lust of your own hearts and eyes. As much as to say, if you see something you shouldn't be looking at, look at the tassels on the corners of your garments to let you know, to remind you that your eyes are to be under control and you're not to be looking at certain things. Well, you know what? We live in a visual society. We live in a capitalist, consumerist society. Um, in many ways, it is driven by envy and by lust. We are shown a product in a particular light so that we will want it, even though we don't need it, and so that we will even lust after it and then go out and buy it. And so Job begins in a place that is very uncomfortable for us. Yes, yes, we would admit that lusting after a person is wrong, but... Lusting after things, hmm, that's a little more difficult. In verses 2, 3, and 4, Job wonders aloud, if he were to look lustfully after a woman, first of all, how would God treat him? Secondly, what would be the consequences? And thirdly, wouldn't God in fact know 
that he was looking lustfully after someone? Nobody else in the world might know, but God would know. And so Job begins this oath of innocence by saying, God knows everything. And so here I am. I'm going to tell you, I've not done these things. And you know what? God knows everything. From something that is very internal, that realistically, unless I gave away signals, no one would know that I was doing this, but God would know that I had done this. And I've not done this. I'm a man. It's natural. But I've made a covenant with my eyes. I'm not going to do that. The second sin he deals with is falsehood. If you look at verses 5 and 6. If I have walked in falsehood or my feet or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. Again, I think this is so contrary to the spirit of our age, which, by the way, is our, our society is so inconsistent in this area. We wink at falsehood when people sort of stretch the truth. When writing a resume is now considered writing a work of fiction for many people. But then we're shocked when someone gets caught telling a lie. In the, I think last year, several coaches applied for jobs and got jobs. And then it was only discovered later on that they didn't have the master's degrees that they claimed to have on their resume. Who would think to put that, I mean... I have a master's degree from a school. No one is going to check that out. But beyond that, Job says, God knows everything. I was telling uh, in Sunday school, we were talking about this. If you're ever in a situation where they say, okay, I need you to tell a lie and have somebody believe you. Uh, if, if you're ever in that situation, I'm your candidate, okay? Because I can never tell when people are lying. I just cannot. I don't. I just. You can just tell me the biggest lie and I will believe you. Okay. But you know what? God knows. God knows. And even if you are the world's most expert liar, God knows whether or not you've told the truth. Job's not a man of falsehood. He doesn't lie. And therefore, he's willing to expose himself to the world to say, no, I have not done this. What about covetousness? This is the third sin in verses 7 and 8. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led astray by my eyes or my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown and may my crops be uprooted. Again, we come to the matter of the eyes and there is a continuum. Steps, eyes, hands. Actually, it's steps, heart, eyes and hands. It's a real sense of a holistic view of sin, if you wish. The whole person involved in this. Coveting is the tenth of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Francis Schaeffer has written about this in his book, True Spirituality, which I would encourage you to read. One could argue that the first nine commandments are external. It is the tenth one that is internal, coveting. And Schaefer goes on to argue, based on Romans 7, that coveting is the sin we all commit before we commit any of the other nine. It begins in the heart, and then it works its way out. Coveting is a sin that, like lusting, is a very private matter, or can be, 
can be a matter that realistically no one else would know about. But Job says, God knows everything. And if I have done this, and now we come to the first thing he says, then may others eat what I have sown. May my crops be uprooted. That is, may my life's work be in vain. What I have done, may it come to nothing if I am guilty of coveting. The fourth sin is adultery. Verses 9 through 12. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, and may other men sleep with her. For that would have been shameful, a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have been uprooted, or it would have uprooted my harvest. In the first verse of this chapter, I think Job was speaking more of lusting after a woman who is a virgin, someone who is unattached. She is not married. Here he speaks of a married woman, his neighbor's wife. He speaks of being enticed as well as waiting for an opportunity. So whatever the scenario is, if she's after me, if I'm after her, it doesn't matter. Okay, uh, he, he covers both sides of the coin. If he commits adultery, he has done something shameful. It has at least three dimensions. First of all, against his own wife, that he has broken the covenant of marriage. Secondly, against his neighbor, because he has violated his neighbor's trust. And thirdly, it is against God. He has profaned God's name. And if Job has done this, the consequences would be that his wife would be reduced to menial slave labor and that she would become a sexual object for other men. Like, wait a minute. Job, if you did this, then why does your wife suffer the consequences? This sounds far too patriarchal for our comfort. Why does she suffer the consequences of her husband's adultery? Well, before I explain that, let me just ask you, does a wife suffer the consequences of her husband's adultery? Absolutely. Okay. But here, in the, in the ancient world, the disgrace of a wife is the disgrace of her husband. Because he is the one who has caused this to happen to her. Because adultery is a shameful sin. It can lead to destruction. It can consume one's wealth that your crop would be uprooted. And in the Old Testament law, adultery was a capital crime. Punishable by death. How strange that sounds in our world today to speak of shame. But Job says, I've not done this. I have not done this. And if I have, then there should be severe consequences. The fifth sin is mistreating the people who work for him. Verses 13 through 15. If I have denied justice to my men servants and maid servants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Servants had rights, at least according to God's law. Man's law is usually pretty shaky on that. But their, their rights are limited because they are not free. They are servants. They are slaves. But it didn't mean that they could be mistreated. Simply because they had fewer rights did not mean they had no rights. Job did not mistreat the people who worked for him. Because if he did, he would have to answer to God. 
even if what he did was within the strict definition of the law. Job was someone who treated people well. Because Job remembers, and we should as well, that God made both the master and the servant. The servant doesn't come from another God. They're not made by an inferior God. The same God made us both. And servants should be treated with dignity. Verse 6, and this begins a trio here. Treating those in society who are weak. How are we to treat the poor? How are we to take care of those who are widows? When it comes to justice, how do we help those in need? Verses 16 through 18. If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, then he says here, but from my youth I reared him as would a father, and from my birth I guided the widow. It all boils down to a lack of concern, a heart attitude. In the face of their request, they need food, they need shelter. How has Job responded? To beg for, for one's needs, basic needs, I think is degrading. I always remember uh, a parable in the New Testament where a man is told by the master, he is the steward, uh, you know, close up the books because you are no longer going to be the steward. And the man's like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm losing my job. And, and he says, to, sh- to beg, I am ashamed. To beg, to su- provide for your family is degrading. But to be rejected by someone when you have asked for it, I think sort of sucks any sense of personal worth that you have. Isn't it not enough that you have been completely humiliated to have to ask and now to be rejected? I think it is overwhelming. Job, Job wasn't this way. He took the fatherless into his house and he did not let the eyes of the widow grow weary. Interesting phrase. He didn't make her have to sweat to provide for the children she had been left with by the death of her husband. Verses 19 and 20, the poor. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man without a garment, and my heart did not bless me for warming him with a fleece from my sheep. In other words, you know, people who need clothing to just protect them from the elements because they don't all live in Southern California. Okay, some people live in places where you need clothing, not merely for modesty, but to keep you from the elements. And what about justice? Verses 21 through 30, uh, sorry, 21 through 23. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint for I dreaded destruction from God. And for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. The final sin here in this this trilogy of sins against those in need is to take advantage of them in court. Because who wants to defend the poor? Who wants to defend the fatherless, the widow? There's no money in it. Uh, In our system of justice, um, for all the problems that it has, we do have public defenders that are provided by the court if you cannot afford one. 
Well, that's not the way it's been for much of human history. Those who are weak have no legal standing in court. And Job says, if I raise my hand against these people, we're not quite sure what this means. There are various options. But if we would give it a modern twist, what happens when you go in court and give testimony? Raise your right hand. Repeat after me. And Job says, if I raised up my hand to take advantage of these people, if I gave false testimony in court, then let my arm fall off. Because to do such a thing would be sin and it would be wrong. And it's interesting in verse 23, Job sort of gives us insight into why he doesn't commit these sins. But I think we need to understand exactly what he's saying. On the face of it, it seems to be that he's saying, oh, I'm compassionate because I'm really scared of God. I'm, I'm afraid of what God will do to me if I'm not compassionate. But we need to remember what Job told us earlier and what we find throughout the wisdom literature. What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. And Job says it is the fear of the Lord that drives me, that motivates me, that gives me the right attitude to do what is right. And to me in verse 23 when he says, for the fear of his splendor, not the fear of his anger, but just the awesomeness of God. That's the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom tells you, you can't mistreat those who are the weak in society. The ninth sin is trusting in wealth. Verses 24 and 25. If I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands have gained. Job was among the wealthiest men of his time. But he did not put his trust in gold. He did not rejoice over his great wealth. Verse 10, um, the tenth sin in verses 26 and 28, he continues in the same vein. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor, so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these would be sins to be judged. For I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Job didn't worship the sun or moon. But we live in a time of electricity. When it is daytime even at night. Okay? I think we really fail to appreciate the sensibilities of what it means to live in a world without technology. To live in the ancient world where the sun shining day after day would almost seem, we would say, the sun ruled the day. To see it as the monarch of the daylight hours. And then when it gets dark at night, to have the moon come out. And uh, the moon is beautiful. It is gorgeous. And to see it in its different phases. And, and sometimes it's, when it's a half moon, sometimes it's dark on top. Sometimes it's light on top. And then uh, my favorite time of the moon, besides full moon, is when you just have that first sliver after the new moon. And it's just so intriguing to the ancient world that we find them worshiping the sun and the moon. And one of the ways that they would show their devotion or their allegiance is they would, they would blow a kiss to it. You know, when I was younger, people called that a flying kiss. You know, teach kids how to kiss their hand and throw it. But it was actually an act of worship that people would see the moon and 
sort of blow a kiss to the moon to say, I worship you uh, as being the ruler of the night sky while the sun rules in the daytime. Job says, I don't do this. I've not done this. If I had, I would be guilty of sin. I would be guilty of unfaithfulness to God, the one who made both the sun and the moon. The eleventh sin. This is a hard one, I think. Verses 29 through 30. If I have rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against his life. It seems to be one of the simple pleasures in life, doesn't it? <laughs> that, that when people who have not done right by us, that when they suffer, just that, yes, um, it's human nature to sort of take delight in seeing people uh, suffer, you know, uh, and sort of like Aunt Polly with uh, Tom Sawyer, you know, if I'm not beating you for this, it's for something else you've done. So if they're not suffering for what they did against us, at least they're suffering for something. Job not only loved his neighbor, he had compassion on his enemies. Following the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that we're not only to love our neighbors, but we're to love our enemies as well. Job is an amazing man. The book of Proverbs tells us, do not gloat when your enemy falls. Or when he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice. Or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from him. This is so hard. It is so hard. But we are not to judge. Everyone thinks Job's done something wrong. That's why he's suffering. When we see somebody suffer, we might think, oh, God's getting them back for what they did. We have no reason, we have no way to know that. And Job says he would not rejoice. Verses 31 through 32, he would not fail to show hospitality. If men of my household have ever said, have never said, uh, who has not had his fill of Job's meat? But no stranger had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler. Here, Job is a man of hospitality on two levels. To those who belong to his family, to those who are strangers. To family, that seems to go without saying, but sometimes those are the people that it is hard to show hospitality to. But Job says, no, people belong to my house, I take care of them. The stranger, in, in the ancient world, when people would travel, they would travel from town to town and try to stay within walls at night to be safe. They would usually stay in the town plaza. Uh, oftentimes there would be a fountain there with water and they would sleep in the streets. Uh, or if there'd be a vacant lot, that's where people would stay. But it was oftentimes the custom that people would go out, the citizens of the town would go out and say, no, 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 my friend, uh, even though they don't know this person, come in and stay at my house. They would provide for their animals. They would give them food. They would give them a place to sleep. Job says in his town, where he lives, no stranger ever stayed on the street at night. His door was always open. He did not fail to show hospitality. The thirteenth sin. 
covering up your sins. Verses 33 and 34. If I have concealed my sin as men do, by hiding my guilt in my heart, because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. It is human to try to cover up your sins. We usually do it by lying. I mean, that seems to be the first instinct. And uh, I will always remember my dear nephew, Lindsay, who, before he said his first word, told his first lie. He had done something and we said, did you do that? No, he hadn't done it. It is human nature. As men do, they try to cover it up. And here Job says of, of covering the guilt or hiding the guilt in his heart. Nobody else knows that you did this. No other human being knows. And Job's like, I don't go that way. One of the reasons that we cover our sins is because we are afraid of what other people will say when they find out that we did something, that they will think less of us. The fear of contempt, the contempt of the clan, the people who are related to us. It causes us to, I'm not going to tell anyone because if anyone ever found out what I did, they would hate me. They would never speak to me again. I would be cast out from society. But Job hasn't committed such sins, and therefore he is not guilty of hiding such sins. The fourteenth and final sin is that of abusing the land, verses 38 through 40. If my land cries out against me, and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment, or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat, and weeds instead of barley. In the Old Testament, there is a strong connection between the people and the land. This is something I think that we have lost. But God is quite clear that when people sin, the land becomes defiled. If a murder is committed and that murder is not paid for, the land is defiled. And when the land continues to be defiled over and over and over again, God told Israel, one day the land is going to spit you out. And you're going to have to go someplace else and find someplace else to live. Because the land will not have anything to do with you. There is, on a positive note, a bond between a people's right to occupy a land and their moral behavior. If you do what is right, then this land is yours. Every seven years, let the land rest. That is a sign of your faith in God. And Job says, I've not sinned against the land by not sinning against my tenant farmers, the people who rent the land from me. I didn't abuse them, therefore I did not abuse the land. If he had done this, and this is the final consequence, if I have done this, then let me have briars and weeds instead of wheat and barley. For Job, there is such a thing as right and wrong. There are consequences when you do what is wrong. And in the 20th century, now we are in the 21st century, this sounds so strange and so foreign. I've been listening to some books on tape, and, and one is on uh, the classics in Christian tradition. Uh, Leland Reichen teaches at Wheaton. Um, and he 
this past Saturday was listening to a tape on Macbeth, the great tragedy by Shakespeare. And he talks just about the nature of tragedy. He goes on to say that in the 20th century, when you look at literature and theater, we have no tragedies. Because in a tragedy, you have someone who makes a tragic choice. They make a choice and it has consequences that come back to him. Macbeth chooses to kill Duncan and therefore there are consequences that come back to him. But in the 20th century, we're all victims. It's not our fault. We're pathetic. It's sad, but not tragic. And so without responsibility, there's no tragedy, only victimhood. And if there is no admission of guilt, then there can be no grace. And the hymn we uh, were singing earlier. And when in sins and sorrows bowed, revived my soul with grace. God cannot revive our souls with grace. He cannot show us grace if we will not admit our sins. And so Job's words sound so strange, I think, in our world. First of all, to speak of sin, and even if we do acknowledge sin, some of the sins he mentions are things that we don't necessarily want to let go of. And then he speaks of consequences. We think of victims. We don't think of tragedies. And therefore, we are unprepared for grace. But Job is finished. We read at the very end of this chapter, the words of Job are ended. Job's done. He's made his case. And now he calls on God to respond. Before God speaks, because God will speak, we have one more participant, Elihu. We'll get in his two cents worth uh, before everything is said and done. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the person of Job, this righteous, blameless man who did not claim to be perfect, who admitted his weakness. And yet, as a wise man lived in the fear of your splendor, did not sin against others, did not sin against you, did not sin against your creation. May we just, in the days to come, meditate on this and think this through, how difficult it is for us to embrace this chapter, to acknowledge sin and consequences. Fear that we are far too much like Cain, who after killing his brother says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Not realizing he should have forfeited his own life. I thank you again for this beautiful day. The freedom we have in this country to worship you. May your grace and spirit go with us as we leave this place. Again, we give thanks for our mothers as wonderful gifts from you. We do this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology?
before benediction, I would just encourage you all to get a chance to speak to Ben uh, as this will be his last Sunday with us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.